What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Institute Collective podcast. My name is Jack Graham. And I'm Mac Rikers. And on today's show, we interviewed Kathy Gabriel. And what an, what an episode. Yeah. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I've known Kathy for a while, but I guess I didn't really know her full story and her background and why she done what she did. Yeah, Don't want to spoil too much. No. Um, but a lot of takeaways in this. Um, I've obviously had the pleasure of listening to it two or three times already, editing through the podcast. And it's already made me jump on and do get something to do something outside my comfort zone to sort of push myself a little bit more. And Kathy goes into this into this episode why you should be doing stuff outside your comfort zone to sort of push yourself forward in life and achieve more. So yeah, I've already decided what I'm gonna do after listening to the episode. What's your next, like what you've already decided on your next challenge. Yeah. So yeah, I think my, the biggest takeaway I got from that episode was definitely her mindset is, is sort of like, you don't know what you are capable of unless you push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I feel like it's from like just her stories, different perspective to a lot of self-help books and stuff like that. It's more real, I guess, and a bit closer to home. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, Every minute of it. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, she's really good at painting the picture yeah. of, you know, what she's been through, what she did. She's very descriptive, which is so good in a storyteller. Like I could listen to her all day yeah. talk about her life. Yeah. Um, so today obviously is a li little bit longer than our normal episodes but it's definitely well worth it. Yep. Make sure you stay around to the end because there's a lot of takeaways through this whole episode. And we'll shut up and let you get into the episode. Enjoy our interview with Kathy Gabriel. head over to the YouTube channel and watch this one. I know there's obviously the audio one that you're listening to now, but there will be a link below this episode to the YouTube channel. Make sure you head over there and have a watch of the video because I've incorporated a lot of photos and videos that Kathy has given us to, you know, better describe her journey. And it just gives you a little bit more visualization of what's going on. So make sure you hit the YouTube link and watch it there. So today we've got a guest, uh, very excited for this one. I've known Kathy for a while, but I'll just shut up and let her introduce herself. So Kathy, if you meet somebody down at the pub or you bump into somebody and they ask, where do you live and what do you do? What's your answer? Well, my name's Kath. I live in uh, Benambra, which is in high country Vic. I run a cattle property. I own uh, my own small cattle property. And yeah, you'll find me kicking around on horses 98% of the time or yelling at tourists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I've always forever been a lover of animals, nature, outdoors, farming. I've spent, I've spent 10 years traveling Australia, working in agriculture. And yeah, I just, just love to get after it, I guess. Nice. Um... Can you just drop your Instagram handle? Because I follow you on Instagram 
and I love watching your Instagram. It literally is just cows and horses and the high country. So what's your Instagram handle? Yeah, so my Instagram's Kathy underscore Gabriel underscore. And um, I have a Facebook public page, Kathy Gabriel. It used to be known as Experience Australian Agriculture. I'm right into my photography. And that's the whole reason I started up like a um, public social profile is when I was traveling Australia, I used to document and update everyone with what I was doing before it became cool. This is way (laughs) before TikTok and that. Like Instagram got invented when I started doing this. And I was like, whoa, this is a pretty cool app. Um, So, yeah, so I forever have been happy to tell anyone if they listen or even if they don't want to listen, I'll just tell you about my life. Um, so yeah, so that's where the socials are and that's what you will find. You'll find every detail. I hide nothing. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I highly recommend going over and giving Kathy a follow. It is quite entertaining and quite visually pleasing as well. I love the high country. I love where you're living, but did you always grow up in Bernambra? No, no. Um, I was about to say, thank God, but I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> no, I grew up the other side of the hill, basically. So a place called Yay, which is um, known northeast. It's basically directly north of Melbourne, again, in Victoria. But yeah, I grew up there. We had like 80 acres, a little hobby farm. And then year 10, I went to boarding school down in the Western Districts, Hamilton. And um, yeah, I was there until the end of um, year 12. And from that is when... <laughs> Even though I was quite um, intellectual, I guess, in paperwork means, they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, farming. And they're like, really? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And yeah, so from there I went uh, north of Udna, Dada working on a cattle station and bit bopped my way all around Australia from the age of 17 till 26 is when I landed in Benambra. And yeah, amazingly, I thought I'd be here for just like six months, but I never left the place. So here we are, nearly 32 and I'm still here. <laughs> when you say cattle station, what's what's does that actually look like for the people that don't know? Uh, yeah, so the property uh, north of Unidata, so it's 100Ks, 110Ks north, which is basically we were really close to the very central point of Australia if you had to draw a line. We were the... Closest to every single beach in Australia, we like to put it. <laughs> yeah, Meaning right. we're really far away from all the beaches. <laughs> um, it was 1.8 million acres of mostly Simpson Desert country. So oh, yeah. what you think of a desert, that's it. That's what we were um, running cattle on. But all the creek beds and that, when it rains and they um, fill up with water, they grow a heap of grass. And the type of country that grass holds its nutritional value for a really long time. And that's why you can have cattle up there. Um, so, yeah, we had, t- uh, it was a drought. So there was only 10,000 cows on the place. So 10,000 cows to 1.8 million acres is um, like, yeah, one cow every couple of K you might see. Wow. <laughs> but, yeah, that was, um, that was my first job, which was pretty, a lot of people say pretty out there to just get your mum to drop you off in the middle of the Simpson Desert. <laughs> but, yeah. And that was mostly horseback or was that flying or no, motorbikes? No, and. Considering my, so when I was younger growing up, my whole life was horses, horse obsessed. I had horse socks, T-shirts, everything was horses. I was always drawing pictures of horses, which was the same in year 12 art. It was horses. Um, It never ended. And then I went and worked on a cattle station that only had motorbikes and I'd never (laughs) ridden a motorbike before. So that was fun. Um, I fell off lots. Um, But yeah, it was all motorbikes because that country is really, really rocky. 
or really, really sandy. And it's really hard on horses, like to oh, okay. constantly be moving. And like with just with the modern technology of motorbikes, a lot cheaper and a lot easier on everything, livestock and all that included to be motorbikes. But yeah, learned how to motor, ride a motorbike pretty well by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you back to Bernambra? Oh, like all great stories, love. <laughs> I met a fella. Yeah, I met uh, every wet season I'd come home to yay. And um, there's a big shindig that happens in the high country called the Mountain Cattlemen's Get Together. And it generally like, moves around every year where it's held throughout this area. So like sometimes it's in Omeo, but sometimes it's over the hill in Mansfield and that. Anyway, just happened to be, I went to, went to one of the weekends of the get together there to catch up with old friends, like the once a year catch up before I head north chasing cows again. And yeah, met a fella and I thought he's okay. And then I went back up north working on stations and I was still talking to him and talking to him. And then I had a small incident occur where I broke my hip in half and I was like, Oh, looks like I won't be riding horses for a while because of that. And he's like, well, you can come down here for six months. And I was like, Oh, righto. Yeah, I'll do that. And yeah, I'm still here and I'm still with him. So it worked out. Wait, wait. how did you break your hip in half? What? Oh, see, this is like, (laughs) it wasn't even on horses. (laughs) Um, is it, it's, some, it's a bit hard to explain unless you um, understand like bore mechanics where you pump water out of artesian bores in the ground. Anyway, uh, it was wet season and I was doing pre-season starts on bores. So like when the wet season, it rains, so there's water everywhere for the cattle to walk around the station. They can have a drink wherever they want. But as it starts to dry up, the water depletes and then the cattle start to rely heavily on the man-made water, which is artesian bores in troughs. So pre-season starts involve like just driving around the property and getting bores running again, pumping water. So your troughs start to fill up. So before all the water dries out, you've got troughs full of water for all the cattle. And I was up there and I was just poking around doing that every day. And I just happened to get to this particular bore and it was a little bit seized up because sometimes like right down at the bottom of your bore casing, which sometimes can be like 150, 180 metres down below you, um, they get calcium build up on it. So you have to put a big tool, which is called like a set Stilson's, but basically you think like a really big shifter. You put it on top of your bore and you turn it in a circle to break the calcium off the bottom. But the way bores operate, it's sort of hard to describe, but it's like an internal spring and you wind the spring up and this is what like picks up water and spins it up and then it releases. But when it releases, it creates like an upward pressure that pushes water up but this all happens very quickly when the motor is actually running and um so I wound this spring up and I was like oh gosh it's pretty tight and I gave one more like click and because it clicks into place with the spring but um what happened is one of the rods way down deep snapped so when that occurs that spring releases and so the big set of like shifters I had sitting on top propelled out of my hand but like what I was using probably weighs about 12 kilos because they're they're big they're like nearly the size of my body this tool that you put on top and um so it propelled out of my hand and um just propelled off and as that spinning motion went round, like when this occurs like it breaks and it snaps and it like goes faster than what you can see so it's almost think of like a helicopter like blade spinning into you and it hit me it hit me twice before the um, the force of the first hit pushed me out of the road. So it hit me twice in right on my hip joint and pushed me into the ground. It actually hit my pinky too. 
because I remember my hand going across my face and it sat my pinky clean in half as well. Far out. But it wow. hit my hip mostly and then it pushed me down and then, yeah, then it was the whole like, well, this isn't good. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, um, it was a typical like Northern Territory February day. It was like 38 degrees and I had to, <laughs> it sounds dramatic. It was, oh, I guess it was dramatic, but it wasn't that dramatic. I had to like crawl to the ute and climb up this headboard of the ute and get the UHF and call for help. But because I was the only person on my the particular station I worked for at the time, there was a greater driver, Barry, but he was a bit mentally impaired and um, he wasn't all with it with like a pretty serious situation. Anyway, so I had to call and there was help and choppers and Mount Isa Hospital and all that. Anyway, I was fine. I was fine. Well, that... <laughs> That makes that perfect sense. Sorry. No, no, that makes perfect sense in the character that I, when I met you, um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, you said, because oh, I, I own the gym close to where you are or probably two hours away from where you are, and you come into the gym and said, I need a, a help with a horse race. And I'm like, I don't got no idea about <laughs> horse races. And then you started to tell me about this horse race and I'm just like, what the hell? Like, do people actually do this? So... Um, get, let everybody know what the horse race is and your first attempt at it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So first time I met Jack was because I was my actually attempt number two at what's called the Mongol Derby. So the Mongol Derby is held in Mongolia. It's a thousand kilometer horse race across Mongolia. The course changes every year. So you don't know where it is. And it's all based back on Genghis Khan who conquered Euro-Asia back 400 500 years ago and it's based on his postal system which is very much the same as like the american express pony system same thing basically you hand your note to a bloke and he hops on a horse and rides as fast as he can into the next station and he gives that note to the next bloke and they take off and like genghis khan's postal system used to be better than australia post these days (laughs) (laughs) he could get his letter to like western australia in like a flash like a couple of days and his letters where he needs to be and so that's what this whole race is based upon but instead of changing riders instead of a rider taking the note the next station the one rider has to do the whole in thousand k's but the horses only do one leg and um when you go into like mongolians like history and culture they love their horses. Their horses are everything to them and they have big festivals every year called Nadam, which is just a Mongolian for horse race. And so they train their horses specifically to basically run 32 kilometres as fast as that horse can. So all these horses are really conditioned and bred for going 32 k's as fast as they can. So that's what this race is. It's your ability as a horse person to walk up and down a horse line and pick out a horse that you think you're capable of handling and that you think you can get safely because everything's very heavily vetted to the next horse station, which is roughly anywhere from 30 to 40 kilometres long. And at the next horse station, when you're vetted through and cleared, then you select your next horse and you do that throughout the race until you finish the 1,000 Ks or get injured, um, which was what exactly happened to me the first time I attempted this race in 2018. I got injured halfway through and I had to pull out. And um, then that's exactly what brought me into Jack's gym because I could not stand the fact that I did not finish this race. And I was like, I have to go back. And I was like, I know what let me down the first time was I did it physically prepare in the way that I should have been. And so that's what led me to Jack's door. And um, here we are, pandemic, (laughs) 
pandemic again <laughs> and all the world things and here we are 2022 and it's actually going to happen so yeah awesome so let's go back to 2018 what was your prep before you were going into this thousand kilometer race my prep was the mongol derby obviously they give you a lot of information and the information is to ride horses and i was like well I'm pretty good at doing that, so I can do that. And they said, basically, you need to just ride as many different horses as you can in preparation for doing this race. And so I took that information and went, okay, I need to ride lots of horses. So that's exactly what I did. I just rode horses a heap. And like, yes, that's great training for the derby, but I really needed to be working on a lot of just strengthening of my own body and my own joints and everything that's involved with training for a massive international horse race. But because when you don't know, you don't know. It's not because you're stupid. It's because you don't have the knowledge. And I don't come from a background of fitness and health and that whole world. Like I had to force myself into it and force myself to learn it, to become better rounded in all that knowledge. And doing this horse race was the first thing I had ever done that wasn't just working in agriculture. It was the first thing I'd ever done in my life that was a massive challenge and something out of like my comfort zone. So when you don't have the knowledge, what you don't know, you don't know. So you can't do. And um, yeah. And then after obviously going to Mongolia and then doing part of the race, I was like, Oh my God. Like one of my things that was so frustrating is I was like, I, I was so frustrated that I didn't prepare the way that what I should have been preparing. And that was, um, and that's a big reason why I've returned is because I just wanted to do the prep the way that it should have been done. So then whatever outcome happens on this race, even if I get injured day one, I won't necessarily be disheartened or really disappointed because if my prep's a hundred percent, I can't be disappointed with the outcome knowing I've done everything that I can possibly do can, to control in leading up to it and then once you're in Mongolia or anything to do with international travel especially a country like Mongolia nothing is in your control <laughs> like nothing <laughs> so yeah well let's stay on that mindset let's go back to 2018 what made how did you come across this race to start with yeah well basically my whole little world got rocked and thrown upside down and kicked down back in 2015 when I was back in the territory is when all of this started that led to this journey. Um, I had a partner who I was working with up in the territory and he got hit and killed by a car. And it was the first massive thing, a traumatic event that had occurred to me. And essentially like, not that I knew it at the time, but I did, didn't handle my grief and I spiraled mentally into a very, very big hole. And I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't think anything was wrong with me, but I knew I wasn't happy. And then that led into the following year, which is when I broke my hip, which is probably all part of the process, really, when you think about it. Um, so I broke my hip and then I came down to this area here, Benambra, which is not far from home. Yeah, it's only like five hours. And so I came down here and then a few months after coming down here, we got the next kick in the gut, which is mum was diagnosed with cancer terminal and she was not going to live. They gave her three months, but she lived till, for 12 months. And that was just the next massive, like, kick a girl when she's down moment. So mentally, like, I was in such a depressive, dark place. I just didn't know what to do to bring joy again. All the things that made me happy weren't my dogs, my animals, working with 
cattle or just being in the bush, nothing made me happy again. So I knew I had to find something, like something to push me to do something to just get the head in the right space again. And that's what led to the Mongol Derby. Just like what we all do, I was thumbing my phone on Facebook and what popped up, but a fella I knew from up in Queensland had won this horse race called the Mongol Derby. And I was like, oh, that looks pretty cool. What's that? And so like everything, you click on it, read a bit about it, look it up on YouTube, look it up on Google. And that's what led me to the Mongol Derby and my whole world changing. I ended up going online and applying for it. And then I got accepted through to the interview stage. And then I was like, oh, how am I going to pay for this? Because it's a very hefty entry fee. And I was like, oh, well, I'll call mum because mum was still around. And I called mum and she's like, oh, yeah. She's like, oh, you have to do this. And then obviously with mum's passing came um, some money. And I was like, would you care if I spent quite a large portion of that money on this race? She's like, oh, you'd be mad if you did it. She's like, what else is that money for? And I was like, okay. So sure enough, I got interviewed and they sort of like, the interviews basically just make sure you're a genuine person. You're not there for the wrong reasons. So Mm. they accepted me. Um, from that point and then yeah my journey to the 2018 derby started and that was back in 2017 is when I got accepted to that and mum passed away Christmas of 2017 and then I raced August 2018 wow so yeah so that's how that's how the derby came about and then the derby did do which it doesn't have to be the Mongol derby it can be any challenge that pushes you out of your comfort zone in a pretty extreme way did everything I needed it to do, but it gave me so much more back. Like the Mongol Derby just gave me my whole life back and it was incredible. So I'd be bad not to do it again. <laughs> Cause now like, not that it's gone give me my world back again, but just everything that that race, the people like the Mongolian people, but also all the international riders and just what the whole challenge of really pushing yourself does. Like, like it, I can't express how healthy it is to do things like that. But yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, so talk us through the ra- the first race when you got there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so typical like Australian country girl. I've never left the country before. So going <laughs> your first international flight to Mongolia was just insane. Like it all started with landing at the airport. You landed at this airport and it's in like the city of Ulaanbaatar. There's only one city in Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. And I think it's something like three quarters of the population lives there. Anyway, landing at this airport and there is like old ex-Soviet choppers gutted out just like right on the edge of the tarmac. But not just that, right next to like where you hop off, there was like four horses just tied up to the fence, like right in the international airport. <laughs> like just like, yeah, they're just tied up there chilling. A few dogs running around. <laughs> like, and this is like the main city international airport and you just like walked across the tarmac and they're like obviously they don't talk slang australian but basically what they're saying is like oh yeah just go over there (laughs) (laughs) sort of like vaguely walking across this airport and you get into this tiny tiny small little um little room and that was like immigration and that it's the easiest thing and then they said i have too many bags so they won't bother searching it so just go through (laughs) (laughs) so anyway so that's basically i tell that story because it sort of describes the rest of everything that happened like in mongolia it doesn't matter what sort of car you own it can be 
right hand drive or left hand drive that doesn't matter doesn't even matter what side of the road you drive on oh no just whatever side suits you at the time there is no speed limit (laughs) we were doing 160k an hour down this road (laughs) where it doesn't matter what side of the road you drive on and i was like what <laughs> dear life, like, oh my god! And my Mongolian driver could talk English, and he's like, "Ah, oh, don't stress about it. It's fine." I was like, "Oh my god, this is insanity!" And that's what Mongolia is like. It's just whatever you want to do, you do that, and it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter if you inconvenience them. Like, you do you, and that's with driving. Um, going out for dinner, riding your horse, it doesn't matter. Like it is nothing. Like imagine Melbourne CBD and there's like 10 horses going down the road as well with just like kids going to school and stuff. Like it's, but also at the same time, you will see like mum in the 200 series Land Cruiser with two kids in the back dropping the kids off. Like there's also like rich people there as well. It's just a crazy place. And it just like, that's what the whole race is like from, we met up at a hotel and then from the hotel you get loaded on a bus and the bus takes you out to Starkett, which is half the half the challenge. I'm just going to say, there is a person on a horse riding towards me right now and that is Benambra in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a kid, so they might just ride past, but if they don't, yeah, stay tuned for instruction. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I live in the sticks. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so, like, Going out to start camp, there is no roads roads in Mongolia too. There's like one road and I think it's 80 k's a tar and the rest is just like dirt tracks randomly just wherever you feel like it. But those dirt tracks are actual roads. Like they're marked as freeways, but they're literally just two dirt tracks down the, <laughs> down the thing. So imagine being loaded in a bus with like 40, 40 other international people just smashing your way down these tracks to get to start camp. It was it was kind of torture. And you get to start camp and then you go through just all the medical stuff and all your safety things because you're GPS tracked and you go through vet, like horses' heart rate have to be low, gut sounds, which make sure like they're not going to get colic, like a stomach ache, and, like how to know gut sounds of your horses, how to tell you if your horse is lame. And you go through all that basic stuff and then, and then the start of the race begins where basically – you're like you're allowed to go choose a horse that you want to start on and then the next day um it's just like crazy town I think I did 30 nervous ways <laughs> for the race <laughs> and then there's 40 international riders and you're all plopped on a horse and there was a pommy chick at the start line with a flag <laughs> and she gave a spiel and the spiel was a fair few words I was really nervous but one of the lines I'll never forget She's like, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. That's exactly what this race will do to you. <laughs> and yeah, and that's what the race was. And she dropped the flag and we just all took off 100 million miles an hour, galloping flat out across the step. Wow. And that was, that was the start of the race. And yeah, I, was, um, I went into that race not with a headspace of I'm here to win it. And I think that that's a really important thing to note on the 2018 race, like with everything mentally that I had been through, I was there to just like do the best that I could physically do, but really soak up and enjoy Mongolia. Um, So, you know, like I'd race that first section 
vetted through but then I went and um because you're staying in nomadic homes each horse station is someone's home so you go in there and they cook your food and all that and you eat food and I was very chilled out like I hung around the first horse station for like an hour then I picked a second horse sort of rode the next leg got to the next station dicked around there for a bit spoke to like some of the herders not that I could speak their language but like did a sign language talk (laughs) and yeah so I was very chilled out when I did it in 2018 but um because of that like like I said mentally where I was it's what's helped me like really grow and change and I I would always race that race the same way back in 2018 I wouldn't change any way that I rode it um but with the whole aspect of this race is you're picking out horses you don't know that you don't know how they're going to respond when you hop on them. And um, a lot of the horses are classified as like wild because Mongolia itself is like Alaska. Their winters last like six to nine months of the year and their winters are extreme. It can get to minus 50, minus 60 in Mongolia, which is what makes these horses so tough. Um, So some of these horses are not ridden at all when you hop on them. (laughs) so, So sometimes that is a bit like not so much like of the draw, but it can be very hard to tell sometimes when you pick these horses because they have been standing on a horse line for like half a day and they can be quite like numbed out to what's going on around them. So you can pick a horse and you go, oh, that's a quiet horse. I reckon I can pick that. And so I picked this horse on day three, end of day three it was. I picked this horse for this last leg and I was in a world of hurt. I was having really bad lower back pain and I was just my body was like, hey, you have it trained right. (laughs) And I don't like you right now. So I was in a world of hurt. And I said to this herder, like, I need a quiet horse. Like, I I don't care if it goes, I don't need to go fast. I just need to get there. Anyway, and he said, this horse, this horse. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, it looks quiet. Anyway, and he pulled it off the line and saddled it up and it was quiet as anything. I was like, perfect, I'll take this horse. And I hopped on it (laughs) and that was when it changed. It was not written ever before, I would oh, say. Wow. It was unbroken and it was just psychotic. It took off at just a flat bolt panic and it took off in the right direction though. We were heading to the next station. So I was like, well, well this is all right. At least we're going the right way. But it would like bolt, which is a horse just running as fast as it can possibly run. But it kept looking back at me sitting on its back and I was like don't look at me mate like eyes on the road like look at where you're going and so when it would look back it would trip and it would fall but because it was going so fast its motion would carry it through its fall so it would fall down on its legs because it was going so fast it would pick itself back up and launch forward and one of the things that I was advised back from previous riders when I was prepping for this race was make up a little strap that's attached to your saddle at the front of the saddle and you hang on to that. You don't hang on to the horse's mouth because you can cause them to flip and it's just uncomfortable for the horse. But if you need a point to hold on to, you make up this strap. So I call it the monkey strap. And so with my left hand, I anchored myself. I had my monkey strap and um, so that was my anchor point. So when this horse was going psychotic, I grabbed onto that anchor point with my left hand And I held on for dear life. And that is what happened for the next 34 kilometres, I think that leg was. This horse bolted, it fell down, it would stand up. And then like a rodeo scene, it would buck and throw me around and then just take off in a gallop again. And this old little left hand held on like steel. (laughs) 
a lot of people say, why didn't you just fall off? Um, and because that would have probably been safer. And I was like, uh-uh, I'm not falling off. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going down with the ship. <laughs> like I am not coming off this thing. How so long, I just held on for dear life. And it, it, an hour, 20 minutes, roughly, probably, oh, shit. it took. Yeah, right. And, um, but it was throughout this time is when the injury started to occur and it was up where your shoulder sort of joins up to your neck. I strained everything, all the ligaments and everything and the muscle in there. I pushed to the extreme and it created tears at that stage of the race. And um, we came into the next horse station at 100 miles an hour, which you're not supposed to do because you're vetted. You want your horse's heart rate to be low. So when you come into a horse station, their heart rate's already low, so they're already recovered, and you can change onto your next horse. Well, I came in at a flat gallop screaming for help. (laughs) And I could see the Mongolians hopped on their horses. They came pouting out and around, and it was like that one came up beside me and grabbed hold of the horse's bridle, and the other dude grabbed hold of my chest and pulled me off to the side and helped me off this horse at like a flat gallop basically and that was the end of that horse leg (laughs) that was the end of that and I was like they're like oh you've got time did you want to do another leg I was like nah I'm good I'm finished for the day I'm sleeping here (laughs) and I knew I knew at that stage I was like god my shoulder feels funny like you know when you're just like something doesn't feel right and it kept like moving my shoulder around I was like oh god that's a bit weird Anyway, and I, so that was day one. That was day three. Oh, <laughs> that was end of day three, and um, is when I rode that horse, and it occurred. Like that's when the start of the injury occurred. And um, anyway, I woke up day four in my shoulder. I was like, God, that hurts. Like that's weird. And then the next thing is like your hydration pack. You have to obviously take water with you. So I had a hydration pack of three liters, and then the hydration pack also has like a backpack in it. So you have your most valuable things in there because if your horse does if you do fall off and your horse takes off with all like your saddle bag like your kit for this race on it there's every chance of like um entrepreneurial mongolians going to probably take that (laughs) (laughs) you have your most valuable things and things you can't be without within your backpack so i had the three liters and i had probably another two kilos of kit in my back which is all coming off your shoulders. So then for the rest of day four, I had the, all that weight sort of bouncing off my shoulder. And I had really good horses day four. They were brilliant. And I did three legs, which is roughly 120, 130 Ks I rode that day. And um, I was like, by the end of that day, I was like riding, trying to take the weight off my shoulder because it was really painful by this stage. And so I got to the end of day four and I pulled up and I was talking to another fellow rider, Will, and I said, God, Will, like my shoulder, it's so sore. And he's like, oh, that's no good. I was like, no, nah, it's not, is it? <laughs> anyway, he was an Australian. <laughs> and he's like, you'll be right, just have a Nurofen. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll have a Nurofen. Anyway, so we started day five morning and I was in excruciating pain. I was, it was so painful. It was like, Anyone that's ever done like ligament damage knows it's a different sort of a pain. It's like a searing pain and it seems to just get more and more and more intense. It's not like when I broke my hip, it was like an ache pain and an achy pain I can deal with. But this ligament pain 
was just like, it's like torture. It sort of just plays with your mind constantly and there's no relief. Anyway, I did the first leg of day five morning and we got to the end of that leg at the horse station. And I, that horse I had was really good. It was a beautiful horse. It was like riding a cloud and I could barely ride that horse. And I was like, if I can't ride this really good horse, how am I going to ride a horse if it's feral and if it bolts and bucks again? Like, I'm like, I can't, I'll get more injured because I won't be able to ride competently. So I'll fall off at bad times when you can get really, really hurt. So it was at that point that I asked to see a medic because there's medics on this race. And um, this medic had a look at my shoulder and was like, he's like, it's not great. (laughs) He's like, I would suggest probably not going any further. And um, yeah, it was also incredibly swollen. I didn't realize how swollen it was, but I had like this massive hump protruding from my neck shoulder region. And I, yeah, you couldn't see it until the medic held up like a little mirror. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, right. Anyway, so that's what sort of brought down the end on the medic's advice. And just, I just knew within myself for safety reasons, like if I, I could have pushed on, absolutely I could have pushed on, but I would have been in excruciating pain and it could have got worse. I could have fallen off. I could have then broke a collarbone or much, much more serious and have had to get airlifted out. So that was the end of the 2018 race. But because my injury wasn't so serious, it wasn't a broken bone, I um, got to travel around with the people that run the race and with the crew. And I'm a big photographer and I had my big camera with me in hotel storage that I got out for this race. Um And so I got to travel around and do a heap of photography, which is just, I love. And again, like, even though the race was over, I still got so much out of that experience, even though I wasn't riding, doing my photography and really slowing down and getting to spend like half a day with a herder's home and playing with their kids. And, and yeah, I just got so much out of it. So, so that's sort of roughly like a brief, a brief, an hour later, a brief overview of the 20th. I was going to say, I've got like 10,000 questions to back that up, but just one before we move on. What happens if you're in the middle of a leg and you fall off the horse? Do you have to walk the rest of the way? No, well, you can. Like, if you're okay, then yeah, you're sort of expected to. But is there people around? Yeah, so you have a um, little GPS tracker dude that's oh. like SOS GPS, and there's a big red button on it, and the red button is like, Holy fuck, I need help. And then there's a black button that's like, I'm not great. I'm just letting you know I'm not great, but I don't necessarily need help right now. So, yeah, so you've got red or black, and red is like, yeah, come quickly. (laughs) So everything stops. If you press that red button, the race stops. Everyone, well, not everyone, because it depends where you are on the race but basically everything within wherever you are like say you're at horse station 14 horse station 12 13 14 and 15 will stop everything they're doing and everything will focus to trying to get to kathy's gps point because you don't know what's wrong the red button could mean like you know someone else might have pressed that red button for me because i could be knocked out um or I could have pressed the red button because, like, uh, one girl that year broke her collarbone, which is extremely painful. So, yeah, the red button means everything stops, all focus turns to helping that rider. And, um, yeah, so that's your main safety for the race. 
but like help could be 10 minutes away could also be five hours away because where you're racing is not necessarily where roads are so they have to try and navigate to that point so sometimes it might be someone on a horse that rocks up to you first to assess the situation so i just want to change i guess the direction a little bit so you've come home from the race and everything like that we've had conversations about this obviously outside this podcast about how much you've learned about your body food intake training all that sort of stuff um so what's changed i guess before 2018 race and then from there to now leading up to the next race you're about to go on everything <laughs> there's not a single aspect of any part of my life that probably has not changed because I learned so much. I just, I learned so much about everything mentally. Like I had this huge mental breakthrough, if you could say, like where the sun's beaming through right now. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah. Um, but mentally I had a big shift and it was just a shift to positivity. So instead of like blaming everything else for my issues, it was more accepting of like, oh, well, that sucks. What can we do to make this a positive? Or seeing the positives in the massive negatives. So like before that race, I would have seen me getting injured and having a dropout halfway through as the most terrible negative thing that could have occurred. And my attitude to it would have been like, oh, well, that'd be right. I mean, that's how the last few years of my life has been, hasn't it? Like that makes sense. Oh, well. But instead... I think of that me dropping out halfway through that race as the biggest positive because I got to slow down, do my photography, really absorb and interact with the Mongolians. So that was a big mental shift for me. Everything turned into a positive all of a sudden. Um, I was like Pollyanna <laughs> when I came home. And, yeah, and, and so that was the biggest change. And from that, all the other changes happened because my mental shift went to a positive standpoint all of a sudden so as soon as I got home I knew I'm doing I have to do this race again and I basically applied straight away I think it was in a month I applied to do the race again and they're like oh yeah absolutely do you want to do 2019 and I was like oh I don't know if the, I was still in a sling with my shoulder I was like I don't know if I can prep the way that I know I need to prep for this race in that small time so I signed up for the 2020 race which is where that music of bum, 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 bum <laughs> comes in with anything 2020. But, yeah, so from that, you know, that's when I seeked out. I was like, all right, I need to get a trainer. And I was like, but the sort of person I am, I'm like, I don't want a trainer that's like, oh, yeah, righto, yeah, do two sit-ups, do a squat, do a push-up. <laughs> like, that's not me. I can't. I can't handle that and I'll just tell you to get fucked, basically, <laughs> the sort of person I am. So I was talking to a mate and she's like, oh, there's this bloke, Jack, he runs a gym. Like, he's pretty cool, dude. Go see him. I was like, yeah, righto. And so that, lo and behold, that's why I just randomly walked into Jack's gym one day and Jack's like, why are you here? <laughs> I don't know, horses? What's this horse race? But um, so that was the first step is I was like, righto, this is what's wrong. I've smashed my hip before. My shoulder's pretty buggered. Like I need to get the body aligned because right now it's all twisted and contorted and we need to get that sorted. So Jack went, yeah, righto, no worries. Let's get that sorted. And so that was like the first step. And so we, we worked on the body. But at this stage, nutrition had never come into any aspect of my life. And it wasn't until uh, 
that was, yeah, so that was 2019 is when I first came and seen Jack. And we're working through 2019. And then then the fires started up. And so anyone that doesn't know, like Australia or East Gippsland, we had massive fires at the end of 2019 and 2020. And so where I lived, basically for two months straight, we just had the emergency running man symbol on top of like where I live. Because where I live, we had fires like north, south, east, west, any direction. It was like fires in a big circle. So any wind change, the running man just changed direction <laughs> of like what fire's going to get us today. Oh, it's a fire from here. Anyway, I laugh about it now, but I was really stressed out. Like I manage a property. I had 200 cattle in my own care. I had my horses. I have my, my own farm. I have my boss's like cabins, family cabins. So all this is like I'm running around like a headless chook for two months straight trying to make sure if a fire comes, how can we minimise the impact of like lives lost as in animals and like and then asset loss. So that's what I was doing for two months straight. So some days like I would hate to know how many calories I was burning. Like some days it would not surprise me if it was over 10,000 calories because it would be like 40 degrees and I'm running around all day with a garden rake raking leaves, running over here, running over there, just crazy. So we were really lucky. We never got burnt out. We're just super lucky with that. The closest the fires got was like 4K away from us. Anyway, but throughout this, my body just switched into survival mode in all aspects. And it was after the fires about a month later that I was like, something's wrong. And I was really worried that I had actually like it was cancer or something like that because my body was not right. My like digestive system was just totally out of whack. Like sometimes I would be like going to the toilet like 10 times in the morning. Just It was just mass evac, anything I put in my body. I would wake up in the morning and I'd be pinging. I'd be full of energy. And then by 10, quarter past 10, I'd have to sleep. I could not function. I had to have a sleep. I just couldn't keep going and then I'd have a nap and I'd wake up again and it'd be like 11 and I'd do like another hour and a half of work and then I'd have to have a sleep again and I was like what's wrong and I went to doctors and that and they're like oh difficult doctors you're fine everything's fine (laughs) I was like I'm not fine like this is so not fine anyway and then that's what landed me to um, a nutritionist in Bansdale a girl called Selena and Selena's like, oh, yeah, no worries. She's like, oh, well, just track your calories. And I was like, oh, fuck. I eat food. I'm fine. Like, of course I eat food. My God. Like, yeah, righto. Anyway, so I wrote down what I was eating for the day, went in and seen her, and within three minutes she's like, that's what you're eating in a day and this is what you're doing in a day. And she's like, oh, my God, eat. Done. That's all I have to do. And she's like, you have to eat. And I was like, it was just naive. I was eating maybe 1200 calories in a day if that and it's not because I was self-conscious and I wanted to have this amazing body it was just because I'd wake up and I'd have like breakfast which might be a bowl of porridge I'd eat nothing for the day and I'd eat dinner and dinner might be like meat free veg sort of a dinner that's it that's what I'd have in a day because that's what I've always done throughout my life working on stations and that because I didn't know any different that's just what everyone has done and then yeah, that was my issue. I was under eating massively, but because of the type of food I was eating at times as well, like I'd happily just go smash Maccas or KFC. And because I was eating that sort of food, I wasn't anorexic looking. I was inflamed. 
like I was quite muscular in some aspects, but then I was also like really squidgy around the middle and it was all just inflammation because my body's like, I hate you right now. <laughs> like I can't keep functioning. And the straw that broke the camel's back was the fires. And so I went and seen Selena, alert about protein, fats, all the rest of it. And then lo and behold, a month later, I was like the Energizer bunny. I was a totally <laughs> different person. And it was because I had to start eating like three and a half thousand calories a day. And then once I started doing that and then reaped the benefits of that, I was like, there's something in this nutrition. Did you know that? <laughs> and other people are like, well, yeah, that's my job. <laughs> that's why I like to talk about it. And so that was the next growth point. You know, we went through the mental shift and then we went through the physical, like, righto, I need to balance my body and get the physical stuff. And then once the nutrition portion clicked, well, it's a lean, mean fighting machine these days. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, it really got me interested then in health and fitness. And because you bring in my aspect, I work on my own. I sort of live on my own. I do have a partner, but he only comes back on weekends. And so modern technology, I, I consume podcasts and audio books like they're going out of fashion to stop myself going mentally insane and talking to just dogs all day. So obviously I've just listened and consumed so much information. And I do like to consider myself to be pretty intellectual in the portion. Like I can take some information and go, oh, I don't think that's the Bible, but you can take bits and bobs from everything and form like a really like well-rounded idea of what is actually going on. And so that's, that's the level we're at now. I, like, I, I feel like I know my body the best I've ever known my body. And I know if I consume something, what that's doing for me. And now I eat like six meals a day. And when I'm talking meals, like I mean meals. <laughs> I'm like uh, one of the hobbits, is it, from Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Like I have breakfast, <laughs> then I have second breakfast. <laughs> And then it just goes on. And then my partner's like, all you do is eat. And I was like, yeah, but look at this. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's sort of the journey post-derby is everything clicked into place. And now I just, I've never been happier and healthier as a whole. And it just shows in all aspects. So, yeah. So how far are you out from racing now? Yeah, so as race day is the 23rd of July. So, yeah. That's two and a bit months, but I fly to Mongolia July 7th. So we're six weeks away from flying out, basically. Um, so I guess from a teachable point of view, what's the different mindset? How are you feeling going into this one compared to 2018? What takeaways can you give to people? Different. When I went into 2018, I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know anything the whole way through and I was trying to control the things I could control massively. Like I was obsessed. You have five kilo is your weight limit of what you can take with you. I was weighing tampons to see <laughs> what they weighed because that's how like much I was getting into like what I'm like using up every single gram of my kit in things I could control whether this time I'm just like, ah, oh, she'll be right. <laughs> because I know that like, don't get me wrong. You need like a sleeping bag, a waterproof jacket. You need to take some medical things with you and like electrolytes and hydration stuff. And apart from that, it doesn't matter how many tampons you have. That's not going to make you win the race. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just this. Um, now I understand that 
the way you can best prepare for this race is preparing yourself. And I'm doing that and I'm well on the path to doing that. So my mental mind shift going back is, well, A, I'm going back very competitive this time. Like I'm still me. I am retardedly friendly. If you don't want to talk to me, I'll just talk to you anyway. Um, (laughs) Even if I pick up the vibe of, oh, this bloke doesn't want to talk to me. It's all right. He's still here though, isn't he? I'll tell him the next story. (laughs) So, you know, like, Yes, I'm in it to win it and I'm very competitive, but I'll also ride with anyone and help anyone out in any degree of what I can because I had so much help that first time going back. So the mindset's positive but competitive. Um, I'm not sweating the small stuff. I'm not individually weighing the most pointless items. I Last time I dehydrated wet wipes. I dried them out. There was a room in our house that just had like 200 wet wipes all hanging out to dry because when a wet wipe is dehydrated, did you know it weighs five grams less? (laughs) (laughs) But you do now. (laughs) So that came in to like my weight thing, whether this time I'm like, oh, I'll just take a pack of wet wipes, it'll be fine. Because you don't, there's no showers on this race. So you want to have something to be able to freshen up day nine of the race. (laughs) Um, That's why you take wet wipes. But yeah. So that's sort of where we're at going back this time, like a lot more relaxed, but like a lot more thinking about more my tactics of racing, which I did did even think about the first time. Like my mindset's in my tactics. My mindset is not in individually weighing pointless items anymore. So when you say tactics, what are you talking about? Uh, So like going back into this race, like knowing myself and I know what my body needs now to keep functioning throughout the day. And the way to ride this race competitively is what you're doing at a horse station, how much time you're sort of fluffing about is what makes or breaks you getting further ahead in this like field. And some people can go to a horse station and even though they're competitive, they can be at that horse station for an hour and a half, just fluffing about like, oh, I don't know where my batteries are for my GPS or, oh, I need this or, oh, I need that. So it's just, having your zone and knowing what you're doing i get off the horse i vet my horse when the horse horse is vetted and safe i go to the toilet after i go to the toilet i fill up my water after i fill up my water depends what time of day it is i either eat some food quickly or i hop on the next horse like it's just having having your system already organized and already knowing exactly how you're going to do things like i'm even probably slightly insane (laughs) but i'm even going through the point now Every single time I ride my horse now, even for work, I'm putting on my hydration pack and I'm going through exactly what I would do if I was on this race. I'm checking the zips every single time I hop on my horse. Like I'm checking my hydration level to make sure when I'm buggered, because it's inevitable you'll become really exhausted on this race. I'm checking my water every time because it's that horse station where you forget to check your water and you're halfway through your next race and you run out of water that that's when things go really wrong because a girl has um, been pulled out for kidney failure before on this, these races because people just push themselves past their limits. Um, so it's all those little things that like that's my tactics now and also tactics in picking horses because I, ha- I do have the benefit of I've done it before so I know what to look for when picking a horse versus what not to look for. So you can hopefully avoid picking the horse that looks quiet but is actually unbroken. <laughs> Psycho. Yeah, yeah, psycho. <laughs> and also mentally, 
knowing that when I get in the shit places of like, oh, is it worth it? It's probably just easier to give up and hop in that car. Like, oh, maybe I'll just chill out here at this station instead of pushing. Like it's no, it's sort of like mentally already tackling that mindset before that even occurs to me. So that's sort of like where my headspace is at this time rather than weighing tampons. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a target of how many days you want to finish the race? Seven. Seven is my target because the winner normally finishes morning day seven. Oh, okay. I will finish morning day seven. We can only hope. But no, <laughs> the target's day seven. But like I said earlier, because I have nailed the prep and I'm really happy with my prep, if I fall off and get injured on day one, which is a high possibility because only out of like 100% of the riders, only 40 to 30% actually finish the race. Like people still ride the race, but they've either had help to finish that race. So they're technically not true finishers. So only 30 to 40% finish this race. And um, so leading back to my prep, like there's every chance I might get injured and hurt day one. And that's as far as I get, but knowing how much I've prepped for this race, I won't be disappointed with that. So even though the goal is to finish day seven, if I don't even finish day one, Yeah, there'll be a level of disappointment, of course, but it won't be an earth-shattering disappointment. Like, I'll still be proud of myself, knowing that, like, I'd done everything that I could within myself and the rest is just up to the Mongolian gods, more or less. (laughs) So, yeah, so the goal's day seven, but if I don't finish till day 10 or if I get injured day one, you can still know that overall I'm going to be really proud of myself and still really happy. So, yeah, but, yeah day seven morning hopefully you guys will see my name splashed yeah. about everywhere as i ride across the finish line dramatically can you watch <laughs> yeah. can you watch it anywhere like the finish or is there like some sort of board to follow or something yeah yeah absolutely so um i was trying to get someone to run my socials for me but that's looking a bit difficult um it's more like if i want someone to do it properly it's financially really expensive yeah <laughs> I just don't want to ask any Joe Blow to do it. Anyway, but, yeah, so my socials might be a bit hard, but there'll be a major link that I'll post on my socials and have pinned of, like, click this and it'll take you to the Mongol Derby page. And it doesn't matter if it's Instagram, Facebook or the website, but we're GPS tracked. So those safety trackers are linked to the Mongol Derby website where they have the map and they'll have the full race track map. And they'll be like, I don't know what color it could be. It could be pink KG. And so you click on that and it'll tell you like how far I've gone, what my average speed is and where I am plotted on that race. And then also it depends where the race is, but now it's getting quite big. They do try to make the finish line somewhere where there's phone service and they live stream it on Facebook and Instagram and all that. So, yeah. But, yeah, the main thing is just going on that Mongol Derby page and clicking like the GPS track track that person and you can scroll through the riders and that and yeah i'll get the link off you and put it in the show notes for everybody that's listening yeah um all right so to wrap things up i i want like first of all thank you very much for sharing your story it's been amazing it's i've been loving every second what i feel like it's a very good sort of teachable moment that you could give to people how you've just dived into this thing and it's completely changed your life. 
uh, it might be a bit scary for people jumping into something as big as doing a Mongolian horse race. But what advice or what takeaways would you give to somebody that feels stuck and they feel like they need to change? You know, they're feeling like they need, you know, they're in a hole, they're not too happy and, you know, they need something. What, draw them back on your experience, what can you tell them to do, even if it's not, like I said, not as big as a horse race, what do you reckon they could do? Yeah, it doesn't have to be like a global event (laughs) to do, (laughs) but it's just, it's just finding something that pushes you out of your comfort zone and like not just a little bit out, like not just out as in like, well, I normally run 2K a day, but today I'm going to run five. (laughs) It's like, no, like say if you're a runner, well, why not take on a mountain trail running event or, you know, say you're an artist, well, why not go, I don't know, overseas to an art conference? It's finding something that, that or even used to make you happy about life, even if you don't have that happiness anymore. It's finding that thing that used to bring you joy and just finding something unique that's involved around it because it doesn't even matter if you're into IT. You can find something unique within that circle that would push you out of your comfort zone. And that's my advice to anyone. Do something that's like up your alley but not like anything you've ever done before. Like I, I ride horses, but I'm not like an elite, amazing equestrian person within the horse world in Australia. People don't go, oh, Kathy Gabriel, oh, she's an incredible rider. Like, no, I'm just like another Joe Blow on a horse. Like I'm no one special when it comes to those things. So that's my advice. Just do something, even if it's writing. Try and write an article and get it published. Like it's just doing something that pushes you out of your comfort zone because when you go out of your comfort zone, you just realise how much more of the world that there is. And that, like, yeah, you're not limited to anything. You can do anything that you want to do. So, yeah. Love that. Great advice. Any questions? So I've got one more. (laughs) Knowing what you know now, I guess this is more a race and you mightn't call yourself an athlete, but you are definitely an athlete now. You're training like an athlete. You're eating like an athlete, sleeping, all that sort of stuff. You're prepping for a pretty major um, event. What advice would you give your 2018 before the first race? What what advice would you give that athlete back then? Do a push up. Oh, the advice! My God, that's actually a really hard one. I don't really know because mentally I wasn't in an headspace to accept anyone's like advice on life so that's really difficult but I guess the advice would just be similar to what I was saying before do the things you don't want to do just do the things that make you uncomfortable like I was riding horses because that was within my comfort zone of training for something and like doing gym type exercises was it because it's a world I've never been in before so yeah it's just like do the things that are uncomfortable to prepare yourself for other things whatever they might be i guess that would be my advice yeah do the thing that's uncomfortable and yeah do a push-up at least one before the race (laughs) (laughs) all right love it thanks again uh i said this has been great love hearing your story and we'll definitely get you on after you've won the mongolian derby yes we can only hope yes
thanks again for everybody tuning in. Obviously, you've liked this episode so far, so make sure you give us a like, subscribe, and follow. Head over, Kath, head over to Kathy's Instagram and follow her race and show a bit of support. And we'll see you all in the next episode. Bye.